0: My name is Grace, I'm a grad student at UMass, and today I'm going to be reading, and our uh, preaching is going to be from Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, so if you have your Bible, go ahead and pull that out, and read with me. Well, I'm going to read. You can be quiet, but read in your heads. (laughs) (laughs) What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for this day. Thank you not just because of our circumstances or because it's springtime and things are feeling hopeful, but thank you, God, that you are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Thank you for this word. Thank you for Paul and writing the book of Romans. Thank you, Jesus, that... Um, We get to hear today and be encouraged and convicted again that it is not by our doing but because of the amazing, radical, sacrificial love of the just judge. Pray that you would convict us today, that we would be responsive. Pray for Tommy as he preaches. Thank you for the preparation that he put into this message. Um, and maybe even if he's feeling slightly unprepared, thank you, Holy Spirit, that you do dwell within him and that um, he doesn't have to rely on himself, um, but that your Holy Spirit is going to speak through him. Um, Pray that we would be sensitive, that we would not just be hearers of the word, but that you would lead us to obedience out of love, not out of obligation, but out of love. Um, Jesus, I also... I uh, want to pray for um, our Asian and Asian American brothers and sisters today who just recently there's been just like lots of visibility on the media of discrimination and mistreatment um, although that has been happening all along um, I do pray for comfort and peace for them and um, But I also confess, Jesus, and ask for forgiveness for not grieving with those who grieve um, for so long. Um, And I pray that um, just especially in this time when it is so visible and it might be the first time on our minds for many of us, God, I pray that today that you would lead us to um, listen with love, to ask questions, if that's appropriate. Um, But... Yeah, we ask that Mercy House would be a place um, where you see. You are the God who sees everything. Um, and, yeah, I pray that um, you would uh, turn our hearts now to the preaching of your word. Thank you for your, your message and for your word, God. Amen. Amen.
1: Good morning. Mercy House. Morning. Happy Palm Sunday. Glad that you are here. Awesome to see all the littles back there, too. It's got a full house. I haven't actually been able to be on this stage preaching in a long time. The last couple of times, we've had some close calls with COVID, so I've had to do it from my basement. So this is a lot nicer than my basement. Oops. All right. Well, my name is Tommy Moore. I do get a chance to preach here from time to time, and every single time I do... I'm always just super thankful and grateful and honored to be able um, to do so. Uh, We're gonna be continuing on in the book of Romans this morning. Um, So if if you're not there yet, I encourage you to open up your Bible, get there. If you're at home, open up your Bible, uh, turn to Romans chapter four. Um, And as you're getting there, as you're flipping there, I, I just wanna take a minute to catch us all up to speed. So at this point, Paul has been making the case for the gospel uh, with some very specific points. And so he, he's laid the groundwork in these early chapters to establish that we, as humans, all of us, are broken and we're sinful. That though there may, at times, appear to be gradients of that sinfulness, with us being tempted to say things like, well, we're not as sinful as that person, the standard of holiness that we're graded on is not a range from like A to F. This is something that's important to understand because the the standard of holiness is the perfect righteousness of God. So this is, uh, it's a pass-fail test, right? You're not getting graded between A and F. Um, Any ounce of shortcoming or sin is going to be a failure because we're being measured to the perfect righteousness of God. And so Paul reiterates that we have all sinned and have all fallen short of the glory of God. If you were to think about life as a test, a test that you needed to pass in order to be with God and have relationship with God, then we've all failed that test. We're all dropouts of that exam. Some of us are actually entering finals week, right? So this is very real to some of you. I want you to take a minute to imagine this. So you're taking a test And your entire grade in the semester hangs in the balance for this one test. And not only that, but if you get one question wrong on that test, you fail. You're out. Because the only way that you pass that test is with a perfect 100% score. Talk about a nightmare situation, right? I may have just communicated a real nightmare that some of you guys had last night but that is the spiritual reality that we live in. But instead of just flunking out of a class and needing to repeat a course again next semester, the penalty for flunking God's test is not just having to repeat that class again, but is this eternal death and this separation from Him. So the stakes of this this test are, are eternal and incredibly significant. But with this bad news, Paul gives us incredibly good news that there is a way to actually get an A. There's a way to have our relationship with God fully restored, and instead of experiencing eternal death and eternal separation, we can actually experience eternal life and eternal relationship with Him, and that's through the gospel of Jesus Christ and what God has done for us on the cross. This is some of the groundwork that Paul has been laying out for us. So in Christ, we can get this A. (laughs) We're awarded with a perfect score of righteousness and not by earning it, not by studying really hard, not by living a good life or praying the right prayers or uh, accumulating a lot of knowledge. We're pardoned from that failing grade in our sinfulness and given the honor of a passing grade from Jesus who aced the exam himself. And himself suffered our penalty for failing the exam. So, how do we receive this? Well, we receive it through faith in Him, not by works, not by studying, but by putting our faith in Christ and receiving the gracious gift of justification, the perfect righteousness of God. So, you imagine failing this final exam And as you're cleaning out your dorm room, because you've been kicked out of your program, Jesus walks in and he offers you a perfect score. Not just an A on that test that you failed, but a perfect 5.0 transcript and a diploma. And he hands it to you. And even then, he then goes and experiences the rejection of the dismissal that you deserve. And instead of having no hope for the future, being given a brand new opportunity at life. That, that is the gospel. That's the good news that, that our faith is built on. It's the good news that, that Mercy House as a church is built on. It's the good news that Paul is basing his entire letter to the Romans on. And this is where we're starting this morning. A lot of preachers will land at the gospel. We're taking off from the gospel here, and we'll land on the gospel as well. And so the text that we're reading this morning is really an extension of Paul's point that justification is by faith. And he's drilling down deeper into this point because it's such a critical aspect of the gospel. If you don't get this, this foundational point, you, you don't really get any of it. He wants to make sure that the members of his church in Rome grasp this point, and really he has two main objectives in these verses, as we're reading along this morning. One, he wants to further clarify this idea of justification by faith, so if those are big words you don't understand, don't worry. We're going to drill down into those. And two, what he wants to do is he wants to show that this is not like a new concept. That's part, it's actually a part of this legacy, this story that God has been writing since the very beginning of time. So not something brand new, something that has already been written. So by now you should definitely be at Romans chapter 4. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Paul's, Paul's, Paul says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. When Paul says that justification is by faith, so th- that means that being made righteous before God is accomplished through belief in God, it ruffled some feathers. It ruffled feathers because as a Jewish person hearing this, it dismantled a large portion of his or her religious belief. The structure of belief and the common conception of righteousness for the hearers at this time would have been that when you do good things, you then become good. When you follow the law, you earn God's favor. When you act righteous, you become righteous. And so, in effect, justification, it's not by faith, it, it's by works, it's what you do. So imagine for a minute that you live in a society and a culture with this belief structure where, where you're standing, your right standing before God depends on your performance in life right, that you have to avoid sin, you have to keep hundreds of traditions, you have to sacrifice your resources, your time throughout your entire life until the day that you died. And then someone comes in and says, "Mm, that's not really how this works, right? You would imagine it kind of ruffles some feathers that Paul is saying it's actually through faith, not through all that effort that you're putting into this. So if Paul is going to go there, which he, he just went there, He's going to need to pull out some big guns. He needs to make a solid case for this. And for first century Jews, there's really no bigger name drop outside of God than Father Abraham. So why does Paul use Abraham as an example? Well, I think for two reasons. One, Abraham is the founding forefather of the Jewish people. The nation of Israel. So there's really no modern comparison that would really do justice to the role, uh, to his role in the foundation of Israel and, 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 and of the Jewish people. Uh, there's nobody higher than Abraham on this hierarchical food, food chain. Someone who really embodied everything about what it meant to be a Jew. So that's one reason. A second reason uh, Paul is referring to Abraham is because Abraham really is widely accepted by all of the rabbis and the Jewish leaders at this time to be the epitome of what it meant to be a righteous human being. They revered Abraham almost as inhuman in his right standing before God. And so, in short, Abraham was this holy, righteous, and, and shining example of a man for all of Israel to be able to look at. But, but look at what Paul says in verse 1 again. What then, shall we say, was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Paul does something a little crazy here. He he points at Abraham and asks everyone, uh, what has Abraham actually accomplished? It's kind of crazy that he would ask that saying what has abraham actually been able to gain according to his flesh or in other words through his works through the things that he's been able to do what does he have to boast about the 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 rhetorical question is answered in his line of reasoning from the previous verses in chapter 3 and the answer is nothing abraham has nothing to boast about look what he says in verse 2 if abraham was justified by works he has something to boast about but not before god What Paul is saying here is, if the Jewish worldview of works-based salvation was true, Abraham may be able to boast as he's compared to other people around him, but not before the perfect righteousness of God. So, you go back to my exam illustration. If we were given letter grades for our righteousness, Abraham might be able to boast about his C-minus as he's compared to his peers who got D's and F's, right? He'd be like, yeah, my C-minus looks pretty good. Like, I'm top of my class right now. But when he takes that C minus to God, who's expecting a 100% to match his own righteousness and his own holiness in order to pass that test into eternity and into relationship with Him, there's no boasting there, right? Abraham's not like, got my C minus, God. What do you think? No one takes a C minus to their professor and boasts about the C minus, because in this exam the C minus is an F. Gray's not but God's not grading on a curve. <laughs> we see this in Isaiah 64, 6, which says we have all become like one who is unclean and all of our righteous deeds are like polluted garment. Mercy House, don't make the same mistake in thinking that our relative holiness and, or, or righteousness in comparison to others around us is something to be boasting about or that it's something that we ought to be basing our right standing before God in. If we catch ourselves feeling a sense of pride or a sense of comfort that our lives aren't as jacked up as those other people's lives are, something is amiss. If we find ourselves finding peace and some sort of solace when we hear news break about someone being a sexual predator and we think, well, at least I'm not that person, I'm just, I'm just looking at porn. We need to kill that before it kills us. That's a works-based gospel of comparison that leads to death. We will not appease the judgment of God with our holiness as it is compared to our other brothers and sisters, but as it's compared to the holiness of God Himself. This is what Paul has been talking about in these early chapters. I encourage you to go back, listen to some of these sermons because he does go into depth about this idea of the holiness and the wrath of God. So Abraham didn't accomplish his justification because of his righteousness, Um, uh, uh, his right standing before before God. Um, It was received through his faith, not by the things that he was able to do. And this is Paul's central argument. And look at, look at verse 3. For what does the scripture say? I want to pause real quick right there. Paul models something that is so important for us. If you're going to try to make a point and try to convince someone of something theological, don't base your argument in what someone else has said. Don't base your argument in a commentary or a blog post or, Lord have mercy, like a tweet or something like that. Go to the inerrant living and active word of God, like Paul does right here. He says, for what does the scripture say? he points it out for the church in Rome. He says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. The argument is pretty airtight here. Um, Abraham, what did Abraham do? Ooh, no one's listening. You all get an F. Uh, He believed. He believed God, and it was counted to him, that is the believing, as what? Righteousness. All right, you upgraded to a D. Good job, class. It doesn't say Abraham was a good man and it was counted to him as righteousness. It doesn't say Abraham was relatively righteous compared to his peers, and that was counted to him as righteousness. It also doesn't say Abraham was just sitting there minding his own business, and then that was counted to him as righteousness. It says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul does what any good preacher, any good Bible teacher does. He shows you the Word of God, and then he challenges you to respond to it, to face the words with your own eyes, and then to do some wrestling with it. And Paul doesn't stop there. He brings in another heavy hitter into the ring. Look at verse 4. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And Paul draws an important distinction for us by differentiating uh, between work and between grace. And what he's saying is, is when you work, your paycheck is not a gift. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a gift from your employer. And so you may have heard the story this week of a man who was, who was fighting to get his last paycheck and that paycheck was finally given to him, but it was from his employer who dumped a giant pile of greasy pennies in his driveway. Yeah, terrible story. It's ridiculous. But the man's final paycheck, what he was asking for, he wasn't looking for a handout from his employer. He didn't lodge a complaint with the U.S. Department of Labor because his employer didn't give him a gift. He was demanding the wages that he had earned, that he had worked for. But if someone gives you something that you didn't earn, what's that called? It's called a gift. The word used in verse 4 here, Uh, You may see in the ESV translated as gift is the Greek word charis, which can also be translated as grace. Commentators understood this to be signified in, in a lot of the classical authors as a favor done out of the spontaneous generosity of the heart without any expectation of return. I think Paul draws this distinction because it's quite possible that the Jewish hearers of this would interpre- uh, interpret Abraham's act of, of believing as like a form of work. That, okay, maybe it wasn't what he did with his hands um, and, and, and his life that made, made him righteous, uh, but what he actually was able to do with his mind. <laughs> maybe his faith, his act of believing is, is the work that he does to kind of will himself in order to be justified. But that's not the case. And and Paul makes the point by quoting David, another pillar in Israel's genealogy. And the point he makes uh, is that David's perspective on God's justification of man uh, is, is not based in work. That the righteousness being received is not wages for work being done, but a gracious gift bestowed by God on those who believe. Look at verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is a man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. For those who are forgiven, those who are pardoned of their crimes, and this is the big illustration that Robert used last week, there is no ounce of pride or ability to boast as if they earned what they received in their pardon. It's quite the opposite. What they actually earned was a death sentence for their crimes. And what they received was charis, unmerited grace, given from a place of great generosity. So they're not boasting because they get time off their sentence with good behavior. They were pardoned of their crimes as an act of grace. Verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. And so justification, being pardoned from our sin and being made righteous before God is a gift of grace that is accessed by faith, not earned by works. Remember that one of Paul's main reasons for continuing to drill into this truth is that he wants to show the Jews that this isn't some new thing uh, that God was doing. So it's not like in the Old Testament you were saved by works and now in the, uh, in the New Testament, it's all about grace. As if God maybe like, needed to switch gears in the middle. He's like, oh no, this isn't working. Like, they're not able to earn it. I got to come up with a plan B. He wants to show them that it was always about grace. It was always about believing in a God who would be their father and their savior. It was always about having faith in a God who made big promises and believing that he would be faithful to deliver on those promises to fix the problem of sin and restore his people back to himself. So the narrative of this story of redemption is not about how Israel would one day finally start acting right and get their stuff together. It was always about God and the work that he was going to do in the hearts of his people to restore them back to himself. For Jews, this is potentially an amazing, an incredible moment of revelation and freedom as they saw this consistent storyline of redemption that traced from Jesus all the way back to Abraham. But it also showed the Gentiles, the non-Jews, that this wasn't God arriving on the scene in like an ambulance and just patching things up because they didn't go according to plan. This was the plan all along, and this is what they were being invited into as they were joining the covenant community of God. But what about circumcision, Tommy? Right, that may not be a an objection of yours, but it would have been for the Jewish hearers, uh, and they would have said this, or at least thought it. So, real quick, circumcision right? This is like kind of the main themes here. A quick plug for a sermon back in, two. I think it was two falls ago, we did Path to Paradise. There's a sermon all about circumcision in there, the significance, um, the symbolism, everything about circumcision that you could imagine, and the role that it plays in the formation of Israel. So, I encourage you to hop back. We'll post that on our social media this week. But really briefly, it it is this, um, it, it is what happens to boys, Uh, after they are eight days old, Jewish boys, uh, and it would be done to mark them as part of Israel's covenant community. Um, And generally speaking, if you weren't circumcised, you weren't Jewish. And if you weren't Jewish, then you didn't have access to God. And so the circumcision was understood as this action, this work uh, of justifying people before God. It was like, if you have the mark, then you're good. So what do you think of that, Paul? How, How do you handle that line, of understanding and reasoning. So this is one objection people are saying as they're listening to Paul preach this gospel. The other side of things, the Gentiles, uh, who weren't circumcised, would probably be tempted to say that, all right, circumcision doesn't mean anything. That this new gospel didn't have anything to do what you did in your flesh or to your flesh, uh, but really focuses on your heart and what you do through faith. That the Jews had this strange and painful tradition it was archaic, it was pointless, because God doesn't really care about this idea of circumcision. It's all about grace. It doesn't matter what you do. Um, the, the actions of your life are meaningless in light of the free gift of justification, which is accessed through faith. So it's all about grace. Paul totally anticipates both of these arguments. Look at what this final section says for Paul. Verse 9, is the blessing then only for the circumcised? righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. If we had a time machine and and we could somehow warp into this specific moment in history, I think what we'd see is, is a group of, of Jewish people and a group of Gentiles listening in on this, kind of like a football game, like, like the Super Bowl, and it's two different teams, and it's like double overtime, and there can only be one winner, and they're cheering for their team, and somehow at the end, both teams win. Like, there's two Lombardi trophies, and everyone's excited, like, yeah, we're, yeah, we're all winning, this is amazing hear me out here, okay? That opening question in verse 9, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? That is like the white elephant question in the room that everyone wants answered at this point. It's a hot topic during this time because there's so much tension between certain Jews and the Gentiles, and so everyone would want Paul, uh, this, this person of great authority, to weigh in and just settle it once and for all. Who is the gospel for, Paul? Is it for Israel, God's chosen people, or is it for these Gentiles of whom Jesus spent a ton of his time with? The answer is yes, it's for both of these groups. Look at this verse, it says, for, what we, for, for we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness, how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. So what Paul is pointing out here is that the circumcision uh, was not the action or the mark that did the work of justifying Abraham and making him righteous. Paul is breaking down the logistics of Abraham's conversion here. He's saying that Abraham's faith led him to be justified and made righteous before God, and then he was circumcised. That's a very purposeful order of events as they unfolded in Scripture. Look at verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Circumcision was the marker that represented what had already happened to Abraham. It's like when you go to vote, right? And when you go to vote, after you're done voting, you get a sticker. And that sticker says, I voted. And you put it on yourself and you take a selfie And you post it on social media and you tell the whole world, hey, I voted. And that sticker by itself doesn't mean anything. It plays no part in you voting. It's not helping you fill out the bubbles. It's not enabling you to be in that voting booth. It's a mark that seals the fact that you have voted so that you and others can know that you voted. Are you with me there with that illustration? So Abraham's circumcision was a sign it was a mark of the righteousness that he already had through faith in God. And while it doesn't contribute to Abraham's salvation, his justification, it's it's also not meaningless. The circumcision still had purpose. What was that purpose? Look at verse 11. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. This is where heads explode on both sides of the isle. As everyone realizes that they are all in on this incredible story, the greatest story that's ever been written, like they're a part of it. God and His divine omniscience made it very clear through the order of events uh, to show distinctly that circumcision does not produce justification, So that at the present time, those who weren't actually circumcised would be able to see that they have access to justification through faith, just like Abraham did, the first of all of God's chosen people, just like he did before he was circumcised. He was uncircumcised when he had access to that grace. At the same time, Abraham was circumcised so that he would be the representation for what it meant to have faith in God, but then also to follow through in faithful obedience to him because that's what circumcision represented, a very practical act of obedience as fruit of having faith in God. Are you tracking along? Like, this is amazing stuff. Abraham, then, is the father of the uncircumcised because entrance into the covenant community, being adopted into God's family, it's not through genetics. It's through faith. And Abraham is the father of the circumcised, who not only have faith in God, but who also are walking in the footsteps of faith with their whole lives, not just a piece of their skin. Because in the end, that's what Abraham did. And certainly not perfectly, but his faith produced not just a moment of circumcision, but a lifelong pursuit of obedience and faithfulness to God. The example of Abraham teaches us that the gospel is for the uncircumcised and the circumcised it's for those who grew up in the church going to youth group and it's for those who grew up with parents who are atheists and not an ounce spiritual it's for those who are studying theology in seminary and it's for those who have never read even a single verse of the bible it's for those who listen to k-love on the radio and for those who listen to laser 99 3. the gospel is for everyone who believes in God and puts their faith in Him. While we don't have this spiritual uh, tradition of circumcision today in the Christian church, we do have baptism. Baptism. Baptism is not just the modern equivalent of circumcision, it's the completed illustration of what circumcision was pointing toward it's this external sign of something that has happened internally and the complete immersion under the water during baptism signifies a complete whole body whole life surrender to god not just a toe in the water not just half of your body not just a sprinkle on the forehead a total dunking beneath the water to symbolize the complete and comprehensive nature of god's justification in our lives Now, do you need to be baptized in order to be a Christian? Do you need a sticker that says, I voted in order to vote? I think the line of reasoning is similar there. That being said, there is weight and significance to this ordinance of baptism, and we would definitely encourage anybody who has experienced this faith in God uh, to follow through with this baptism. To show how that inward transformation of faith um, is something that that you can share with the world. So you can get that sticker that says, yes, I I believe, I have faith in Christ. If you have questions about baptism, which makes sense, um, check out our Meet Mercy House classes. We have a whole section talking about baptism, all the different forms of baptism, what we believe here about baptism. So I want to encourage you to do that. All right, this is a lot. A lot of talk about circumcision, right? What does this mean for us? Well, it it, it means a lot of really good things for us this morning. It means, first and maybe foremost, we don't have to be circumcised. It does help us understand baptism as an outward sign of an inward transformation, like I mentioned. But circumcision is not a part of what it means to be a follower of God. Uh, Justification is through faith and not through works. That's another thing that we take away from this passage. Another thing we take away is that justification is a gift of grace. It's not something that is earned. We also are picking up that the gospel is for everyone, everywhere. This is why we're so passionate about the mission, is that this good news is not just for people sitting in this building, not just for those who grew up in the church. It's for every single person everywhere. We're also seeing here that genuine faith produces obedience as a fruit of that faith. So what this means practically for us this morning is is pretty simple. If you want an A on the exam, right, going back to that original illustration, if you wanna be pardoned from your failures and your shortcomings, it's not a matter of living your life better. It's not about earning righteousness before God. Complete and total justification is a free gift of grace given to us by God to be received by what? Faith. Two right answers, come on. To be received by faith. If you haven't received this gift, if you want to know more about what it means to receive it, then come talk to us. We're gonna be outside, socializing outside, not in here. If you're listening online, we have a website, uh, and if you go to the page, mercyhouse365.org respond, it lays out what this means to put your faith in Jesus. It also gives you a chance to be connecting with someone on our team so we can talk about it more so I want to encourage you to do that this morning if you haven't received that gift and for those of us who have received this gift walk then in the faithful obedience consistent with what you believe as Paul says to the Jewish people don't be merely circumcised don't merely say that you're a follower of Jesus don't even be merely baptized don't merely listen to a Sunday sermon but walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father abraham did showing complete obedience to god the god that he puts his faith in so i want to encourage you this week to be praying about what that looks like for you there are some application questions on the digital bulletin to guide you through that process this week so this is palm sunday that's why we have things down the center of this aisle and and when jesus uh triumphantly entered Jerusalem with these, uh, th- these um, palms on the ground. Uh, what we need to remember this morning is that when he was doing that, he was doing that in order to purchase this justification that we have access to freely by faith. And he was on his way to pay for that justification with his life. At this point, 2,000 years ago, on this day, people were super excited. They were super pumped about this Jesus, this Savior who was coming, but they were merely looking at Him as a worldly, political, military leader. They weren't really understanding the the surpassing uh, spiritual implications of what Jesus was about to do for them. As much as we can say that justification is by faith, that it's a free gift of grace for those who believe in Jesus, what's free to you and me came at a terrible price to God. But this was the plan all along. God didn't scrap the Old Testament and scribble down some plan B in the New Testament. The, the thread of justification through faith in God runs throughout the entire Bible. And so this week, you're going to see the climax of God's plan being unveiled in history. We have lots of different ways for you to participate in this, and I do encourage you to do that, to walk through uh, this week with us as we enter Jesus' last week on earth before his crucifixion. So dig in this week, check out that website, um, I think it's slash holy week, to see everything that's going on and, and, and walk with us through this week. Let me pray for us this morning. God, your story of redemption is, is beautiful, it's masterful. God, we thank you for what you've done Uh, for us in in order to make our justification possible uh, through faith in you. God, thank you that the gospel is for everyone, that it's for us, that that we have the forgiveness uh, of our sins and eternal access to you as this free gift. And so, God, help us to believe and continue living by faith in your grace, your charis, your unending, unconditional, generous love toward us. God, free us from the ways that we think we need to earn a right standing before you, and let us live uh, as those who are pardoned and, and restored by faith in you. Let me pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.